This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Okay, welcome to Friday Night Lecture at Southboro Libri. Um, before I get started, I want to let you know that Next week, same time, same place, we have another lecture, the penultimate lecture of our fall term, uh, from our very own Kelly Coon. Um, it is called, Let Them See the Farm and Let Them See Faith, Reflections on Christianity from Those Who Work On and With the Land. So, for those of you who are guests here tonight, you're welcome to come back for that. And everybody else, you should be here anyway. <laughs> so tonight, um, I want to begin by describing how I started linking the idea of love of neighbor and Charles Dickens novels. Um, when I was in, I think, late high school, I decided I would read a Dickens novel per year until I had finished all his completed works. Um, and, and actually, I'm old enough now that I'm rereading. I'm um, about maybe four four novels into rereading. Um, and I think when you're reading that much Dickens, you start to notice, or you're reading it that regularly, you start to notice that there are no chance encounters in Dickens. His books are crammed with characters. That's what he's most known for. Um, in Bleak House, for example, the last time I counted, there were 65 characters with names. Uh, that doesn't mean there's like extras too that don't have names. Um, and and these characters cross and recross each other's paths constantly. And in Dickens novels, when characters cross paths or, or sometimes literally fall into each other's paths, there are two responses. We get characters like Betsy Trotwood and Mr. Dick, Mr. Crummles and his acting troupe, Mr. George, Mrs. Jarley of Jarley's Waxworks, Solomon Gills and Captain Cuddle, Amy Dorrit, the Darnay family, Mr. Jarndyce, the Marchioness, Lizzie Hexham and Jenny Wren, Naughty Boffin, Mr. Brownlow, Alan Woodcourt, Walter Gay, many, many more. Um, and these are good Samaritans. They essentially say, you have fallen into my path. I get to help you. And then there are characters like Quilp and Samson and Sally Brass and Rigaud, alias Blandois, alias something else. He has, like, multiple names. Um, Fagin, Silas Wegg, Rogue Riderhood, Mr. Bowles, bad Samaritans who say, in effect, you have fallen into my path. You have fallen into my clutches. I get to exploit you. So in these encounters, indifference is not an option. These encounters aren't chance. They're going to mean something, however trivial, in Dickens' massive, tumbling, uproarious plots. And even when indifference is attempted, as in the case of the Marquis in A Tale of Two Cities who runs over a poor child who literally falls in front of the carriage, 
There are consequences. The Marquis pays for his indifference with his life. But let me give you a positive example as well. Arthur Clennam, this handsome man on the left here, is a major character in Little Dorrit. And he's walking in London one evening, as Dickens' characters are are wont to do, um, contemplating his melancholy and lonely life when there's a commotion and he finds himself in a crowd of people carrying a stretcher to the nearest hospital. Someone has been run over by a mail coach. And Arthur hears the victim, this guy on the stretcher, calling out in Italian, which none of the people carrying the stretcher can understand. Um, But Arthur can because he's traveled extensively. And so he comes close, he comforts the man in his own language, he gets him water, he takes him to the hospital, talks with the doctor, makes makes sure he's okay, promises to come visit him the next day. Later, when uh, Cavaletto is released from the hospital, he gives Arthur gives him a place to live. He shows him a place to live. He gives him a job. It's basically the parable of the Good Samaritan in Victorian London. Dickens was fascinated by people. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote a, a work called Criticisms and Appreciations of the Works of Charles Dickens. And he says that Dickens, especially in his earliest works, is close to all permanent human things. He is allied to the people, to the real poor, who love nothing so much as to take a cheerful glass and talk about funerals. (laughs) Especially his earlier works, but actually all of his novels have something of this character, a sense of what Chesterton later calls the idea of a random experience, a thing come across in the street, a single face in the crowd, followed until it tells its story. There is the assumption in Dickens that there is nothing and no one that is uninteresting. So this evening we'll follow some characters and listen to some stories. Um, But first... uh, we'll attend to a couple of things that I want you to kind of have in your mind in the background as we get into Dickens' texts. Um, We'll look at some of the methodology that I'm using, how I'm reading these novels that I'm referencing, how we're reading them together. We'll also look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and Jesus' teachings about loving your neighbors. And then we will dive into the title of this lecture, kind of mapped onto the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor, fellow passengers, as yourself to the grave. So that's sort of where we're headed uh, this evening. So first, a little bit about methodology. For this, I'm drawing quite a bit uh, from a lot of the ways that Karen Swallow Pryor looks at literature in this book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. Um, and I'm accepting as my starting point some of her premises. Um, there's a whole lot more that can be said about this kind of reading, and it, I'm happy to talk more about that in discussion afterwards. Um, if, if you're in literature and in, into literary criticism at all, there's kind of this whole realm of debate about whether this is even a legitimate way of reading literature. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about that, because I think it is. That's why we're doing it tonight. Um, <laughs> But for now, let's listen to Karen Swallow Pryor. She says, reading well adds to our life, not in the way a tool from the hardware store adds to our life, for a tool does no good once lost or broken, 
but in the way a friendship adds to our life, altering us forever. This whole book is is essentially an argument for why um, or how literature can be and should be a key part of virtue formation. And there are two things that reading literature and loving others have in common that I really want to emphasize tonight. So reading literature and loving others both have in common attention and imagination. Reading literature, because it's usually harder work than saying reading a blog post or a listicle, um, gives us practice in paying attention. Swallow Pryor says, literary language inherently resonant with layers of meaning reminds us what fullness of language looks like. In another book that I found really helpful, it's called A Theology of Reading, The Hermeneutics of Love by Alan Jacobs. Um, He says, loving attention always recognizes the manifoldness that is the irreducibly complex wholeness of a work. What are these guys saying? They're saying, essentially, there's a lot going on in a work of literature, and it takes patience and attention, attentiveness, to get at it. Attention is essential to reading well. Attention is essential to loving well. There's always, already, a lot going on in any person that we encounter. And the same goes for imagination. It's essential for reading well. It's essential for loving well. Swallow Pryor says, we must imagine what virtue looks like in order to act virtuously. Through the imagination, readers identify with the character, learning about human nature and their own nature through their reactions to the vicarious experiences they experience while reading. She quotes Paul Taylor, who says, We learn from fiction in something like the way we learn directly from real life. Literature doesn't assert, but presents. So there's a a long tradition of seeing literature as a means of learning and of character formation, not primarily or simply as art for art's sake or about emotion and self-expression. So the the longer and older tradition of literature as a means of learning and of character formation is what I'm working in today. Um, Reading literature doesn't only require that our imaginations are working so we can understand what we're reading, but it also works our imaginations. It trains them, it exercises our faculties in recognizing others as others, similar and different from ourselves, other people to love. Which moves us into the other background piece of this lecture. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. So I'm trusting that most of you are familiar with this story. But if you aren't, or even if you're a little rusty, go read it right after this. You can find it in Luke 10. Um, It's one of Jesus' most well-known parables. It's probably the most taught on and preached on. Um... A lot of people who've never read the New Testament will know this story. Um, And when commentators talk about this parable, they they generally say things that if you've ever heard a sermon on this, you've heard. Um, They basically say it was a really big deal for the Samaritan to help this wounded man because this wounded man was presumably a Jew. The two peoples hated each other. 
right? We've all heard this before. Yes, sound familiar? So Jesus is teaching us radical love and care for even our enemies, right? Yes. Yes. But I think his teaching is even thicker than that, more robust than that, as if that's a small thing. Um, But there's a lot more going on, I think, in this parable. For instance, Jesus takes the question that starts the parable off, that prompts the parable. The teacher of the law asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus takes that question at the end of telling his story. He turns it around and he says, who was a neighbor to the wounded man? So he's inviting the listener to identify not only with one of the three people who walked by, but to identify with the victim and making the Samaritan the exemplar, the teacher in this story. This is a really key turn. I think for me it opens up even more questions. For example, what if the one we need to learn how to love our neighbor from is a very unexpected person? What if we need to learn how to love our neighbors from the people that we would expect to be the marginalized ones who need help? The ones we would expect to be on the receiving end of mercy. A number of commentators pointed out that we usually, and Jesus' audience presumably, assume that the victim of the robbers on the road was a Jew. But actually, he would have been stripped of any identifying markers. The only thing those passing by could see when they looked at him was that there's a wounded human being on the side of the road, or maybe even a dead human being on the side of the road. Sylvia Kiesmat, in her commentary on this parable, says, Any self-respecting pious Jew in a ditch would rather be left for dead than be helped by such a person as a Samaritan. And and I think that is probably what any self-respecting Jew not in a ditch would have thought they would have thought if they were in a ditch. (laughs) And I think Jesus is pushing the envelope a little bit and saying, really? Would you really split hairs about who is whose neighbor when there's a human being naked and bleeding on the side of the road, especially if that human being is you? Utterly helpless, stripped down to nothing but your human body, and even your hold on that kind of tenuous. Let these complicating questions kind of ring in the background as we keep looking at this. These are things, these are ideas you're going to hear again. The turn that I mentioned in Jesus' question uh, is something that if, if commentators noticed it, um, they didn't really seem to keep it in mind when they got to applying the text. Um, Almost all of the things I read about this parable all answered the question, who is my neighbor, by turning quickly to big categories of those in need. The global poor and disenfranchised, the unborn, the refugee, the immigrant, the unfortunate, huddled masses, developing countries... Or they glibly said, so our neighbors are all people, everyone in the world. 
A Catholic scholar named Marcus Mesher, in his dissertation about this parable, says that globalization would seem to facilitate the possibility of considering every human being one's neighbor. And he points out how overwhelming that is. Especially when we have the ability to open virtual windows onto anywhere in the world in any given moment. It's right in our pockets, the ability to do that. The possibility of considering every human being one's neighbor leads us to what Mesher calls, and he's quoting Pope Francis, the possibility of globalized indifference, of emotional inertia and moral paralysis. There's more than 7 billion people on the planet. That's a lot of people to love. Um, To paraphrase Mr. Incredible, (laughs) when everyone's a neighbor, no one will be. (laughs) You see, I'm not convinced that when Jesus commanded us to love our neighbors as ourselves, he meant love every human being on the planet as myself, right now, right here, just do it. Love, real love, not some sort of benevolent fellow feeling for humankind. Um, love is by its nature particular. And I, I don't think, I can't, I can't even think about or encounter every human being on the planet without generalizing. Even, even with all the help of my electronic devices. Um, in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren says, In the Christian faith, it's almost a philosophical principle that the universal is known through the particular and the abstract through the concrete. We love people universally by loving the particular people we know and can name. We love the world by loving a particular place in it. The parable of the Good Samaritan helps us learn that anyone might be a neighbor, even someone we think of as an enemy. But being ready to love anyone who falls in our path, anyone we come across, is is not the same as loving everyone in the world. Neighbors are particular, not general. And particularizing is the purview of fiction. And especially it's found in the genius of Dickens and his particular faces in the crowd, his dozens of named characters. Chesterton comments that Dickens took the poor individually. All modern writing tends to take them collectively. Dickens saw the problem of the poor not as a dead and definite business, but as a living and very complex one. Unlike the social reformers of his day, Dickens didn't talk about the poor. He wrote about Sam Weller and Bob Cratchit and Maggie and Joe and Mr. Nemo and Liz. And to such characters, we will now turn. Love your neighbor, fellow passengers, attention. I'm going to give a little English teacher aside here. Um, As we get into these texts, listen for the language of sight, seeing, looking, watching, vision, and how all of those connect to knowing. This is important language for our purposes tonight, especially as we think about attention, and imagination. So for this first part, I'm going to read a passage from Bleak House, 
which is one of Dickens' later novels um, and one of his most thematically unified novels, also one of his thickest novels. Um, It was really hard to choose which passage to examine because uh, this novel is full of places where Dickens contrasts what he calls telescopic philanthropy. It's one of his chapter titles. Telescopic philanthropy with its opposite, which I call the gift of attention. So in the passage we're going to look at, see how many I could have chosen from? Um, In the one we're going to look at, actually. Here we go. The narrator is a young woman named Esther Summerson, and she's been invited by a professional philanthropist named Mrs. Pardiggle to accompany her and her children on a visit to a poor neighborhood. So Esther and her friend Ada try to get out of it because they find Mrs. Pardiggle a bit intimidating, with uh, what Esther calls her rapacious charity. (laughs) But they end up going along. They can't get out of it. So they end up going along, and they end up visiting the cottage of a brickmaker and his family. The brickmaker is the guy lying down. He's not exactly sober, um, lying down on the floor. Mrs. Pardiggle pulled out a good book as if it were a constable's staff and took the whole family into custody. I mean into religious custody, of course, but she really did it as if she were an inexorable moral policeman carrying them all off to a station house. Ada and I were very uncomfortable. We both felt intrusive and out of place, and we both thought that Mrs. Pardiggle would have got on infinitely better if she had not had such a mechanical way of taking possession of people. We both felt painfully sensible that between us and these people, there was an iron barrier which could not be removed by our new friend. By whom or how it could be removed, we did not know, but we knew that. We were much relieved under these circumstances when Mrs. Pardiggle left off. She rose and made a little vortex in the confined room, taking one of her young family in each hand and telling the others to follow closely and expressing her hope that the brickmaker and all his house would be improved when she saw them next, she then proceeded to another cottage. I hope it is not unkind in me to say that she certainly did make, in this, as in everything else, a show that was not conciliatory of doing charity by wholesale and of dealing in it to a large extent. She supposed that we were following her, but as soon as the space was left clear, we approached the woman sitting by the fire to ask if her baby were ill. She only looked at it as it lay in her lap. Ada, whose gentle heart was moved by its appearance, bent down to touch its little face. As she did so, I saw what happened and drew her back. The child died. Oh, Esther, cried Ada, sinking on her knees beside it. Look here, oh, Esther, my love, the little thing, the suffering, quiet, pretty little thing. I am so sorry for it. I'm so sorry for the mother. I never saw such a pitiful sight as this before. Oh, baby, baby. Such compassion, such gentleness as that with which she bent down weeping and put her hand upon the mother's might have softened any mother's heart that ever beat. The woman at first gazed at her in astonishment, and then burst into tears. Presently, I took the light burden from her lap, did what I could to make the baby's rest the prettier and gentler, laid it on a shelf and covered it with my own handkerchief. We tried to comfort the mother, and we whispered to her what our Savior said of children. She answered nothing, but sat weeping, weeping very much. 
An ugly woman, very poorly clothed, hurried in, and coming straight up to the mother, said, Jenny, Jenny. The mother rose on being so addressed and fell upon the woman's neck. She also had upon her face and arms the marks of ill usage. She had no kind of grace about her, but the grace of sympathy. But when she condoled with the woman and her own tears fell, she wanted no beauty. I say condoled, but her only words were, Jenny, Jenny. All the rest was in the tone in which she said them. We felt it better to withdraw and leave them uninterrupted. Esther is unsure of her qualifications when it comes to charitable work. Earlier, when she's trying to get out of this visit, she tells Mrs. Partigal that I was inexperienced in the art of adapting my mind to situations, sorry, to minds very differently situated, that I had not that delicate knowledge of the heart which must be essential to such work. And now, this, this is a modest assessment of herself. Esther clearly does have the gift of attention. Mrs. Partigal is so busy preaching that she can't see that there's a dying baby in the same room. Esther and Ada are paying attention closely enough to see and also to realize that they have no idea what to say or to do. They try, but it is the other poor woman, Jenny's neighbor, actual neighbor, who knows the mother's name and knows best how to condole with her. And in their attention and realization, in watching how the neighbor comforts Jenny, Ada and Esther grow in that delicate knowledge of the heart that is essential to really loving one's neighbor. Later in the book, they cross paths with Jenny and her friend again, and they work with them to help another sick and destitute person. Notice how the poor are the teachers of how to love a neighbor here. We, we don't have time to go into all the other ways this novel is rife with the cont- contrast between telescopic and general views of the poor and the gift of attention. Here's an illustration, a quick illustration of another instance. Um, Joe, the poor sweeper boy, is sitting in the front here. He's falling asleep because he's so hungry and tired. While the preacher, Mr. Chadband, gives a sermon for four pages about heavenly light that he calls some like bizarre Hebrew word that I don't think is even Hebrew. Um, who attends to Joe? When the sermon is over, it's the orphaned maid, Guster, who notices that he's hungry and gives him her own dinner before he's sent away. Esther Somerson told Mrs. Partigal that her resolution is to be as useful as I could and to render what kind services I could to those immediately about me and to try to let that circle of duty gradually and naturally expand itself. The work of loving particularly begins with attention to what is happening around us right here, right now. It begins with growing our attentive capacities by watching those who are good at attending, who maybe have more inside knowledge on what is important to attend to. Simone Weil, in an essay about attention and education, says, Something in our soul has a far more violent repugnance for true attention than the flesh has for bodily fatigue. We would rather be dead tired than to actually pay attention. Because true attention actually means stopping. 
not doing anything for a minute except opening our ears and our eyes. Mrs. Particle says, I am incapable of fatigue when she is faced with a tough subject who refuses to listen to her sermons. We might, we might not be sermonizing at people a lot. Maybe we are. But we might not think that we do that. But are we attending to people? It's so much easier to do something, to check off a box or stick to the program or count up totals or go on our rounds. Loving our neighbors means paying attention and often waiting to do anything until we have first attended. In the later incident that I mentioned where Esther runs into Jenny again, it's to help Joe, the sweeper boy. Esther says to Joe, I came to see if I could do you any good. What is the matter with you? She just asks him a question. She's not going to force her help all over him. Simone Weil again, she writes, Those who are unhappy have no need for anything in this world but people capable of giving them their attention. The capacity to give one's attention to a sufferer is a very rare and difficult thing. It is almost a miracle. It is a miracle. Nearly all those who think they have this capacity do not possess it. Warmth of heart, impulsiveness, pity are not enough. The love of our neighbor in all its fullness means being able to say to him, what are you going through? It is a recognition that the sufferer exists, not only as a unit in a collection or a specimen from the social category labeled unfortunate, but as a man, as a human being, exactly like us who was one day stamped with a special mark of affliction. Recognition that the sufferer exists. Recognition is going to move us to our second cluster of ideas here. As yourself, to the grave, imagination. We'll add recognition to our words about sight. But not just imagination for its own sake. Imagination birthed out of attention. Imagination in the sense of expanded vision. Imagination for the sake of recognizing other people as just that, other people. Other selves, other subjects, other people with whom it's possible to have mutual relationships. Imagination for the sake of living out the golden rule to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. So I hope that most of you are familiar with Dickens' Christmas Carol. Um, And I think we know it mostly as a story of how that quintessence of stinginess, Ebenezer Scrooge, becomes a generous citizen, giving out turkeys, raising salaries, just (laughs) jolly gentlemen, um, after he's visited by three spirits, right? The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. Uh, He's actually visited by four spirits, but we we tend to forget about Marley, who was dead to begin with, y'all. Remember our grammar (laughs) lesson? Yeah. But that summary, I think, is is a gross reduction of the transformation that Scrooge actually undergoes. His becoming generous is not so much a transformation from a posture of withholding to one of giving, but a transformation from isolation and myopia to mutual relationship and expanded vision. And this transformation takes place 
when Scrooge's imagination is transformed, converted even, especially as he encounters death. At the beginning of the story, Scrooge is myopic. He only thinks about material gain. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster, edging his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance. Scrooge seems to like to be alone, uh, but I, I think he actually doesn't really think about it. In his world of gain, there are creditors and borrowers and renters and clients, debtors, but no neighbors, no friends, no family, no other people. In fact, his own personhood is so shrunken that he's hardly a human being himself. He's a money-making oyster, not a person. <laughs> And and this is what makes Scrooge's nephew's famous Christmas speech, good old Fred. Fred is definitely my favorite character in this story. Um, Fred's Christmas speech is so striking in contrast. Fred says that Christmas is the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. (laughs) Christmas is a time when our typical tunnel vision may open up, a time of recognition. These other people on the train with me, who I so often think of with only mercenary interest, if I even notice them at all, are people just like me. We're all on the same train. We all have the same destination. But not Scrooge. He refuses to let his imagination be opened. He can't imagine that there could be a system of relationship outside that of gain. Anything He can't imagine that anything that doesn't put gold or silver in your pocket could be worthwhile. When Fred says to him, I want nothing from you, I ask nothing of you, why cannot we be friends? Scrooge cannot accept this as a genuine offer of mutual fellowship. It's incomprehensible to him. In the world of material gain, everybody wants something. Everyone is grasping, clutching, covetous. In the same first chapter, there's another scene where Scrooge's imagination fails when the men who are making a collection for the poor and homeless ask if Scrooge wishes to make an anonymous donation. He says, he says, what can we put you down for? Scrooge says, nothing. You wish to be left anonymous? <laughs> he says, Scrooge says, I wish to be left alone. Which, in Scrooge's case, is actually the same thing. Yes, he wants to be anonymous and alone. This is a really memorable dialogue. I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. 
I help to support the establishments I've mentioned, prisons, poorhouses, etc. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it, observed the gentleman. I think we're usually struck by Scrooge's callous words about the surplus population. Uh, But I think what follows is even more striking. Scrooge is saying, I don't know about what other people need or want. I don't know anything about the reasons why a poor person would rather choose to die than be sent to a workhouse. And the charity gentleman points out, but you might know that. You, You could know that. You're refusing to know. And what does Scrooge say to that? It's not my business. True. That kind of knowing has nothing to do with business, with Scrooge's little world of financial gain. It has to do with imagination, and especially about what we imagine about death. This this is a Christmas story, but it's also a ghost story. Maybe something good to reflect on on Halloween weekend. Would we love our neighbors a little better if we imagined our own deaths more often? We are fellow passengers to the grave, after all. That's what Fred says. And the spirits who visit Scrooge throughout the night of Christmas Eve all bring memento mori with them. Images to remind him of death. The first one, the ghost of Christmas past, shows Scrooge a conversation between his one-time fiancée and her husband. The husband says, I passed Mr. Scrooge's office window. His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear, and there he sat alone, quite alone in the world, I do believe. And for a minute, it's a little bit unclear who he's talking about. Who's alone, Marley or Scrooge? Or both? Certainly, Scrooge is nowhere near his partner's deathbed. Office work is more important. The ghost of Christmas present, pictured here, invites Scrooge in further. Come in and know me better, man, he says. Know me better. Know better. With this spirit, Scrooge gets to meet Tiny Tim, who is a particular member of that general surplus population. While they're watching the Cratchit family celebrate Christmas, the spirit chides Scrooge. He says, It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Tiny Tim is poor, he's sickly, he's probably never going to get a job and make a lot of money. But Scrooge has a tenderness for him because he's starting to see differently. As that scene of the Cratchit's home starts to fade, Scrooge keeps his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. Finally, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. The spirit has just shown Scrooge a group of poor people at a pawn shop who are haggling over a dead man's belongings. Scrooge is reflecting on this terrible conversation that they're having, And he says, Spirit, I see, I see, the case of this unhappy man might be my own. Scrooge's mind is opening. He's starting to see that another man's situation could be his own situation. His imagination is working. 
And then he recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed. And now he almost touched a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. A pale light, rising in the outer air, fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Finally, Scrooge is confronted not with the idea of of death, the distant death of an old man or the potential death of someone young, but with death itself, a corpse. A corpse without any identifying markers, no things, no symbols of status or position. It's plundered and bereft. A corpse utterly alone, unwatched, unwept, uncared for. No things, no people, only an it lying on a bed. The ghost dares Scrooge to pull the sheet back from the face of the corpse, but Scrooge can't do it. And we know what Scrooge would see if he dared. If we have any doubt, we find out in the next scene when the spirit shows Scrooge his own tombstone. This is the breaking point of Scrooge's transformation. He says, I'm not the man I was. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on this stone. It might sound like Scrooge is praying that he will never die, but I I don't think he's under any illusions that he will live forever. I think he is praying rather that he will not die like this that he who wished to remain anonymous might not be stripped down to only a name, without any epitaph, without any words about a kind master or loyal friend or good citizen or loving uncle. Unwatched, unwept, uncared for. Scrooge is converted to someone who wants to know and be known. When he wakes up on Christmas morning and discovers that these were all dreams... He spends the time until dinner looking at people and homes and places with an attention he's never had before. When he goes to to Fred's house for Christmas dinner, he tells the maid that he'll just go straight in because he knows me. He tells the charity gentleman that he meets on the way after he pledges to make a big donation. He says, come and see me. His recognition of other people as fellow passengers, of himself as a passenger with them, is what leads to his generosity. So what does this have to do with loving our neighbor as ourselves? Jesus says neighbor here, not love your servants or your employees or your dependents or your followers or those over whom you might have some degree of responsibility or authority or power. He doesn't say be magnanimous, be the one who gives generously and never needs anything in return. That's Aristotle, not Jesus. (laughs) Jesus says neighbor, a term of mutuality, of friendship. Jesus' golden rule, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, is unique among golden rules. It's positively phrased. Others had said, do no harm. Jesus said, do unto others what you would have them do to you. 
Scrooge feared being unwept, unwatched, uncared for. And I think deep down that's what we all fear. Being neglected, being unsympathized with, being unseen. How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? We see each other. We weep with each other. We care for each other. Neighbor love is active. It's, it's like what Joshua mentioned in his lecture last week. It's about forging mutual relationships. Do no harm might mean live and let live. But as Marcus Mesher points out, live and let live morality can just as easily become live and let die morality. Scrooge's morality. Alan Jacobs says that the necessary mutuality of real friendship runs against that universal tendency that George MacDonald called the first principle of hell. I am my own. This was the first principle of the old Scrooge. The new Scrooge finds himself in relationship. He's an employer. He's a friend. He's an uncle. He's an adoptive father. You can do no harm in a china shop in a world of things. Do unto others is a rule designed for human beings. It actually, paradoxically, risks harm because it wagers on imagination, on picturing what you would want another to do for you in that situation and then doing it. Attention and imagination help us watch with and weep with and care for. They help us see those around us as other selves, other souls, other subjects, not objects. And in turn, help us remember our own humanity, allowing for mutual relationships, for networks of care. I also think it takes a transformation of our imaginations to really think through what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves in all the particularities of the circumstances in which we run against each other. And imaginative literature can help us build those muscles we need to do that well with discernment, with wisdom. So, let us read some more. Dickens is most famous for his wild and wonderfully caricatured characters. And these are the characters, I think, that teach us to love our neighbors. Chesterton writes... It is the whole business of Dickens in the world to express the fact that such people are the spice and interest of life. It is the whole point of Dickens that there is nobody more worth living with than a strong, splendid, entertaining, immortal nuisance. (laughs) It is just the man who is maddening when he is ordering a cutlet or arranging an appointment who is probably the man in whose company it is worthwhile to journey steadily towards the grave. So I'll end with a final scene from some of these beautifully comical characters. A scene that shows, I think, that how attention and a different kind of vision can help us love others well. In David Copperfield, the eponymous protagonist, I was just I just wanted to use that phrase at some point, so that's why we had to do this one. Um, the main character, David, has run away from his terrible job at a factory and arrived at his aunt's house after traveling by foot for three or four days. His aunt is trying to figure out what to do with this child because his his rightful guardian is his cruel stepfather. So she refers her question to Mr. Dick, who is a senile old man who lives with her. 
returned my aunt. How can you pretend to be wool-gathering, Dick, when you are as sharp as a surgeon's lancet? Now here you see young David Copperfield, and the question I put to you is, what shall I do with him? What shall you do with him? said Mr. Dick, feebly scratching his head. Oh, do with him. (laughs) Yes, said my aunt with a grave look and her forefinger held up. Come, I want some very sound advice. Why, uh, if I was you, said Mr. Dick, considering and looking vacantly at me, I should... The contemplation of me seemed to inspire him with a sudden idea, and he added briskly, I should wash him. (laughs) (laughs) Janet, said my aunt to the maid, Mr. Dick sets us all right. Heat the bath. (laughs) After little David is uh, washed and fed. Now, Mr. Dick, said my aunt with her grave look and her forefinger up as before, I am going to ask you another question. Look at this child. David's son, said Mr. Dick with an attentive, puzzled face. Exactly so, returned my aunt. What would you do with him now? (laughs) Do with David's son, said Mr. Dick. I, replied my aunt, with David's son. Oh, said Mr. Dick. Yes, do with, uh, I should put him to bed. (laughs) Janet, cried my aunt with the same complacent triumph that I had remarked before. Mr. Dick sets us all right. If the bed is ready, we'll take him up to it. (laughs) Look at this child. Attend. What does he need right here, right now? He's a human being with needs just like ours. He needs to go to bed. So I will stop there. And we can talk a little bit more if you would like. If you have questions comments, or other discussion. <clears throat> yeah, Marty. Um, how was Dickens received when he wrote? I, I seem to remember, I may correct me if I'm wrong, but did he write sort of serially mm-hmm. to earn money because he was in financial need himself or not or just and how was he how were his stories received he was after the the pretty wild success of the Pickwick Papers which is kind of his first real well it's not even really a novel but his real thing that took off he was quite wildly popular um it kind of ebbed and flowed but he did write serially that was mostly how people read things Um, he ran several magazines himself and published in them. Um, yeah, so people would would get them. In. It was kind of like watching whatever TV show nowadays. People would be like, have you seen the latest installment of David Copperfield or the old Curiosity Shop? People getting off the ship from America had maybe missed it. They came off and they said, is little Nell dead? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, spoiler alert. Um, she was. <clears throat> so yeah, so it was. It was usually quite well well received, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, his in a sense, his social commentary is drawing attention to the humanity of poor children, orphans, the attitude toward orphans, which mm-hmm. is just so horrendous. Mm-hmm. Did did that really sort of raise 
social consciousness? Did it change people's attitudes toward toward the poor, toward orphans? I haven't done a lot of study on this, yeah. like the the like social right. historical results of, of what Dickens's work has done. Um, I think it did. Yeah. Um, oh. Chesterton writing, you know, about 50, 60 years later, comments on like how the the people that Dickens makes fun of are now like quoting Dickens. Um, so he's kind of like calling for a return to like we're still doing the same things, we're still the same kind of hypocrites that we that he was calling out. Like let's work on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 If you thought much about when you come out of how his novels will sort of educate the imagination or and Scrooge get jump start his he gets his imagination jump started in a way, mm-hmm. and, but that's the thing is, is so powerful to his writing, so powerful to to inform the, our imagination. I just wonder if you thought much about whether a book to read will do that, you know, uh, more than a film of mm-hmm. the same. You know, I just I mm-hmm. just wonder. It's so much <coughs> you do for yourself in a book. The whole imaginative act that you don't do when you watch a film. Yeah. It's all done for you and mm-hmm. to you. Um, I just wonder if you thought much about that. Because, I mean, you, it's, it's, you said with Marty's question that this, there was a huge concern for poverty and and, uh, and help of the poor in Victorian mm-hmm. England. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was nothing like what should have been done and so on. It was filled with all sorts of hypocrisies and so on. But, but nonetheless, he was part of it, an upswelling of of real concern for what the Industrial Revolution had done to yes. to, to mm-hmm. crush people. Yeah, definitely. Uh, mm-hmm. But I wonder whether you think that in, in our greater reliance maybe on film um, is the educative function to, of the imagination as effective or, I don't know. People, I, I often hear people saying, well, the, the novel is meant to educate moral, but it doesn't really do it. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, certainly George Eliot was very conscious of trying to do this. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Some people felt she and Dickens did. I wonder what. Uh, of course, it's impossible to run a test. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In um, in her introduction to this book, uh, Karen Swallow Pryor talks a little bit about like how the practice of reading literature, literary language itself has a virtue building component built into it and part of it's what I mentioned briefly um, in talking about how like it's, it's often just harder work watching a film is not very hard work usually some some are hard work um, but the kind of work the kind of attention especially that it takes to read a book like this um, I think actually does exercise our imaginations and our minds in a way that watching a film wouldn't um, and as you said, seeing, which is done for you with the film. Right. You've got to see, and, and yeah. that's a huge construction. You can't read Dickens without seeing mm-hmm. these people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think um, this is something that I've, your whole question is something that I've started to think about, maybe coming to a lecture near you in, in several terms. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the difference of how how we learn from and know through film versus reading, I think is a really important question, worthwhile question. Yeah, Ben. 
I'm just thinking that the, at some point, this is related to this, that you know, there's, in order to get anything out of a work of fiction like this, you have to engage, you have to have an imagination, but, but it also exercises your imagination because it's forcing you to create the pictures. Right. Um, but then, <clears throat> is, is what you're saying is that there's a connection between that and then actually a moral imagination as well, which is, it's not just neutral, being able to picture something that's not immediately in front of my face, mm-hmm. you know, creating a picture, not necessarily the same thing as the type of, the type of imagination that's engaged in loving somebody, which is to try to really place myself in their position, right? Yeah. Which is totally morally loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, but both an equally an act of imagination. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you say that one exercising one can can grow the other? Or do you know what I'm asking? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I understand your question, I think. Um, yeah, so I think that um, the the way that reading kind of offers us a particular kind of vicarious experience um, does exercise our imagination in a way that does then transfer to our moral imaginations, being able to say, what would I want someone to do to me if I was in their situation, and then doing that, so following the golden rule, then um, is, is, a, is analogous to the same kind of imagination. Because as we're reading a text, and, and Swallow Prior talks about this a lot, um, we're kind of faced with these moral situations. I mean, that's what a good novel's doing, um, where the character has to make choices. And as we're reading, we're judging along with the character. Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Or they shouldn't do that. Oh, no, they're doing it. Um, <laughs> or, oh, yay, they didn't. Um, I think we're like having like a test run, like training wheels on <laughs> version of like real life decisions and, and um, yeah, judging those kinds of things. Now, that's probably something that's, that's, that connection is obviously something that needs to be made at some point. Um, because I guess you could just read books forever and, and not pay any attention to the people in the room. Um, so I think, yeah, there is, there is that, con- that connection. It is analogous. It's not the same thing. Right. Obviously, loving literary characters is, doesn't get you off the hook for loving your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lenny? Especially with children, them seeing somebody do something brave when they don't feel very brave. Mm-hmm. I was just teaching that scene this morning from the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Peter you know, didn't feel very brave, but he went after the wolf that was attacking his sister. It's a, it puts a picture in the mm-hmm. child's mind of what, you know, I don't have to feel brave. I have to do something, yeah. the right thing, mm-hmm. in this situation. Mm-hmm. And that's the training of the moral imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you see that, too, in how Joe is treated. Mm-hmm. Bleak House, and you know, I mean, it, you, you actually see it happening, and you have you have a picture in your mind mm-hmm. rather than just a sermon mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. To, to one another or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Of, of what that looks mm-hmm. like. Yeah. I was I was wondering. I <laughs> just happened to have a, a book club on Bleak House with mm-hmm. a group of women from my church just mm-hmm. this week, mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the people had trouble with. And I wondered whether you, whether Chesterton said something or whether you thought much about 
how some of his characters are so, are caricatures mm-hmm. rather than realistic. Mm-hmm. If you're used to reading more modern things and everybody's sort of like a real person, mm-hmm. you know, some of these people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Guppy. You know. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> I mean, they're just... They're, but but mm-hmm. is he doing this on purpose? Or is he making some of them laughable or mm-hmm. just disgusting you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to sort of exaggerate the qualities? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Dickens was, was very theatrical. Mm-hmm. He was also very given to sentimentalism. Like he just, yeah. he just yeah. laid it on real thick. Um, <laughs> he was very dramatic. I mean, he he actually kind of acted and worked himself to death because um, he would do these dramatic readings. That's what this picture is from. This is not like what he always looked at. This is looked like he would do dramatic readings, especially from Oliver Twist. The dramatic scene when Sykes is trying to get away from everyone who knows he's murdered Nancy, and it's super dramatic. Um, he would do these apparently in like extremely dramatic readings. Um, so I think that 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 flavors all of his fiction. There there are characters that are like characters in a pantomime or kind of stock figures um, on the stage. I think kind of figure a lot. Um, you really should read Chesterton's. I would love to. Where, uh, where is it? It's public. It's public domain, so it's on the internet, easily available, like on Gutenberg and stuff. So I'm sure it's it, it's printed places as well. It's called criticism, uh, criticisms and appreciations of the works of Charles Dickens, and it's mostly introductions that he wrote for like cheap editions that were being put out um, of Dickens' works. Um, but he does talk a lot about um, his favorite is Pickwick. He kind of thinks that. Dickens peaked early and everything else is kind of like, yeah. Um, but he appreciates everything. Um, but he does talk a lot about how, um, how Dickens, um, how he kind of laughs with and, and at people in very interesting ways. Um, and that's some sympathetic laughter. There was just actually Mm -hmm. an article in first things. Did you see that? Mm -mm. No. The Gospel According to Dickens. Oh, I think we talked about it. I haven't seen it, no. Uh, one or two issues ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I forget who, who it was by, but they were talking about how his use of laughter not as a uh, as a nasty kind of laughter, Correct. but uh, yeah. to laugh with mm-hmm. these characters, to, you know, to a kind of sympathy, mm-hmm, yet... Mm-hmm. No, just point out the ridiculousness of something that they're doing or thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, um, Chesterton has this great illustration of where he says he says Dickens is not is by like he is not an upper class person. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the poorest of the poor, but he wasn't um, he wasn't an upper class person. And he uh, Chesterton talks about how he was riding in a cab and um, turned they turned the wrong corner and ran into like a blind alley where it was just a dead end. And he said, I, as a gentleman, said, this will never do. And the cab driver, who is a cockney of cockneys, said, this is all right. <laughs> and um, and he just said, like, that's the humor of Dickens. It's like this, this like weird like irony and just kind of like funny man on the street. Um, laughing at things that are incongruous yeah. instead of being like, oh, oh no, this isn't proper or how it should be. Um, yeah, so there's a lots of really good bits in there. I could just 
read you the whole thing that Chesterton wrote because it's really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Aaron and then Christina. I really loved your first part about the gift of attention. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. How do you cultivate the gift of attention? Um, I think I think what I was trying to point out in by having you think about those that language of seeing, um, I think asking, you know, and, and trying to figure out ways to see better. Um, and I mean, for us today, it's so easy to walk into a room of people and everyone, no one is looking at each other. What are they doing? What are they looking at? They're all looking at their phones. Um, so even just the simple act of putting it away and, like, looking around, um, I think, is a way to do that. Um, it's also, I think it's also, it's not just a gift in the sense of, like, a talent <laughs> or a skill. I think it's something that you ask for. Like, that's the way I try to cultivate that. I pray for that. I ask God to give me the gift of attention for others. Um, and I think, I think it is, it is a gift to have that um yeah any other thoughts about that yeah marty well just one which you pointed out from one of the scenes Mm -hmm. um is asking questions Mm -hmm. is yeah you know when you when you're talking with when you're meeting someone for the first time Mm -hmm. or not even for the first time but asking genuine questions about how they Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. yeah what's going on in their lives Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah roscoe yeah um Thank you for the lecture. You're welcome. That was, that was good. Um, but as I was thinking about what Aaron said um, about cultivating mm-hmm. your attention, um, it kind of, I think, leads into the back part of the lecture title. You know, um, like what fellow tra- travels towards the grave. Mm-hmm. So um, for myself, over the last two years, I've been visiting graveyards, mm-hmm. um, specifically graveyards with people that I know that are buried in their mm-hmm. family, and it's really given me um, a central point to to contemplate my own death, mm-hmm. and it's, I guess, increased my imagination and attention of the suffering mm-hmm. you know, for those who are beside me, because it's easy for myself to, to place people into groups yeah. and to tribes, Yeah. It's been really something that's, um, that's helped me in that area. Yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, wow. I um, I like visiting graveyards. I just do. Um, but one thing that I do, which is what you said reminded me, one thing that I do when I visit graveyards, especially like around here where there are really old ones, um, is I try to find a person who died at my age that I am right now. Um, you, a, a woman, if I can and just think a little bit about, like, who was she? She died when she was 30. 
Um, what was her life like? What, is, what does her epitaph say? Um, but I, I hadn't yet made that imaginative connection to the broader gift of attention. Well, so thank it's you. It's amazing, yeah, even with people that you don't know, mm-hmm. to, to just think of the time span. Yeah. Yeah. And even the joy that mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. As I've contemplated on that, um, I've made it a, a practice. Uh, every day, you know, maybe <laughs> once a quarter. <laughs> but, uh, mm-hmm. but, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Christina, you had your hand up. You did. Um, I think one thought to the question of how to cultivate that it requires slowing down. Mm-hmm. Even these practices, I mean, go to your yards requires taking the time to do that, to slow down and build in margin mm-hmm. in our days, like day-to-day building in margins, but we have time to notice people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had a question. Um, have you thought or reflected on some of the implications of this as you think about the fact that God's given us a story in scripture and the scripture is full of mm-hmm. stories um, not just commandments or lessons and then kind of a follow up is how do you think about teaching these things in a way that does cultivate virtue but that doesn't bleed over into just moralism yeah I think that's when I I said it really quickly but um, I said that particularization, particularizing is the purview of fiction, but it's the purview of story. Um, uh, it would be weird to tell a story like, once upon a time, all the people on earth, like how would you go from that? All the people on earth went to a party? Like I, I don't know where I would go with that. There's just It's just too much, right? Like, um, Or like all the poor people... Like, that's not a story. That's, like, really bizarre. Um, so, and that, and that is what, um, that is what we see in, in the stories of scripture and, yeah, in stories in general from other people. Yeah. Perhaps you've heard the statement made before. Uh, this particularization reminds me of, one fellow says that uh, fiction was history with the truth left in. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, Sarah. Um, just thinking more about the cultivation of attention mm-hmm. and um, the excerpt you read us from Bleak House, and how I guess this ties in with your comment about caricatures mm-hmm. and how whatever her name was preaching. Mrs. Partigle. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's a lot of anxiety that comes up too. But 
Right. Oh, definitely. This is me, and this is you know, yeah. What I'm doing, what I'm bringing in, rather than coming in, seeing who's there. What's the need? What's the actual need? Yeah, and even the way like she's physically described. I mean, of course, it's the Victorian era. She's got a hoop skirt on, right? But she like knocks stuff over when she when she first visits Esther in her house she like knocks little side tables over and stuff and she also has like four children with her that are like her model children of like good philanthropic citizens and they're all like the worst children ever um, yeah well they're all bitter because their mom makes like gives them an allowance and then makes them donate it right back so, it's hilarious um, and one of them is part of this group called the Infant Bonds of Joy, which is brilliant. Um, but, but I think just like thinking about like, yeah, when I come in, am I like, I'm filling this space? This is about me and my little book that I'm going to read from, or is it like, oh, there's actually not a lot of room in this cottage. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe there's no room for me here right now. Um, and yeah, I think I think that's sort of some of the. Like, yes, it's a caricature, but there's also, like, images from that that we can be like, hmm, do I do that? Do I come in with my plan and take possession of people like an inexorable moral policeman? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Marty. Characters. I can't remember the name of this book, but the one on education with Mr. McChokum Child. Uh, Yeah, Hard Times. That was Hard Times. I think that's Hard Times, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Gradgrind. Grad grind. Grad grind and McChokum Child. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, again, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, you can correct me, that, that Dickens often started with names of people. I mean, these, these incredible names, these so crazy good. names. Mm-hmm. McChokum Child, the head of school. It's just incredible. But, but I have a, a different question, which is, you know, I, just thinking of, I love recommending, if you have recommendations of contemporary novelists, mm-hmm. um, I love a lot of the classics. I don't read enough, and I'm a really slow reader, but I love all of George Eliot's mm-hmm. novels. I'm reading, I'm rereading Shirley right now. Um, they're really slow going. There's lots of editorial, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. I actually love it. I read passages to Dick while trying to get to sleep. You gotta listen to them. You know, because I read a few pages before. Before mm-hmm. I fall asleep at night, but do people read these? T- are, are, I mean, they take they take hard they're hard work, mm-hmm. and but like Shirley is just brings you into the catastrophe of the Industrial Revolution and what it the Luddite rebellions and mm-hmm. why they made sense and the, the initial poverty that you know that that um, industrialization made worse mm-hmm. before it made things better and. Um, but I just wonder, you know, like in schools, do, pe- do people read these old books? Do you have to go to special schools? <laughs> yeah, um, are there any are there any contemporary novelists, fiction writers that you would recommend um, that aren't just Tolkien and C.S. Lewis? <laughs> Yeah, but other contemporary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am not the person to talk to you about contemporary fiction. Nikayla probably is. Um, Yeah, went to. I mean, talking about like how kind of massive these are. um, 
I usually tell people that it's like reading a Dickens novel is like going to the gym. You often won't feel like it. Yes. But if you go for a little bit every day, you will feel so much better afterwards. (laughs) And it'll be worth it in the end. The payoff is really great. Um, Or once you get into it. Yeah, exactly. The beginning's kind of hard. Yeah, yeah. There's so many characters and you don't know which ones are going to appear again. Yeah, because, yeah. I'm making a list at the back. I said, but they may never come back again. And then the Russian novels, they all have ten names. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it is helpful to read one with good notes. Yeah. Um, that's why I like the Penguin editions. Yeah. Um, hmm. So did yeah. have a list of characters? No, <laughs> which no. is also helpful. I to make my own. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but do people even, you know, do younger people, younger people, there's lots of I think people. in school you <laughs> would read, I think in school you would read yeah. probably yeah. Great Expectations. Is that true? Of people yeah. who've been in high school more recently than yeah. I have? A Tale of Two Cities or Great Expectations are pretty common um, assignments. A lot of people don't ever go farther than that. Um, Christmas Carol is very familiar, but I think we're often really familiar with like the Muppets version, which is an excellent version. Um, but if you actually like, he doesn't see a corpse on a table uh, in the Muppets version. Um, so if you really want the real deal, like you have to read it. And but it's little; it's not a, it's not even a full novel. Um, we used to read it um, when our kids were going up uh, every Christmas day. And the bridge, Dick would, the bridge version. There'll be yeah. a bridge version, but well, Dick, would, Dick would have to because of certain places where he'd start to cry, and you'd have to we have to hand them hand them hand them book to someone else who could mm-hmm. who could um, read it without losing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To your credit, Dick. Yes. Yeah, Michaela. Um, so Chesterton wrote that he was close to all the permanent human things. Mm-hmm. Close to all the permanent human things. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think in contemporary fiction, so many people don't want to. Hmm. That's a good point, yes. And people read to take them away from this. Interesting. I mean, that's just seeing what people read at the library often. Mm-hmm. There are some. There are, there, and there are, mm-hmm. I guess. And even, I don't know if you read Mark Helfen. Yeah, he's a really good writer. Mm-hmm. And the Catholic writer Michael O'Brien. Yes, I want to first Walker Percy. Yeah, yeah, you should talk to Lenny for sure. I think, yeah, I think, I think, Nikayla, that's a really good point. I think today, uh, actually, a lot of people would be suspicious of even saying that there are any permanent human things, um, that there even are human things, um, because we're all we're all primarily small groups of of identities not um not humans and uh dickens would not have been a fan of that i don't think um he's 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 very much a humanist in in kind of the best sense mm-hmm. yeah ben um it's just a uh just a random uh comment there was a TV show that I watched 
um, well, many people watch it, um, called The Wire. And there's a whole season which is about the um, journalists and newspapers in, in Baltimore, Maryland. So it's, it's a very rough, it's a lot of rough stories about cops and drug dealers and everything. But the executives at the, um, the newspaper decide that they want their articles to basically to gloss over the really gritty, like, actual things that are happening in Baltimore and focus on the Dickensian aspect, which mm-hmm. is basically to sentimentalize the poor. Mm-hmm. You know, to tell, tell the, the picturesque stories of poverty, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was, you know, they refer to it as the Dickensian, you know, the Dickensian mm-hmm. aspect of, of, the, mm-hmm. of the city or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the, the real journalists who were, like, going around were just, like, didn't even know what that meant, mm-hmm, but uh, I just thought that was interesting. Maybe, maybe unfortunate use of Dickens' name, but but you can sort of see where it comes from in terms of what you were saying about the the um, sentimentality. There's, there's yeah. some sentiment here that's being laid on fairly thick, even when he's talking about really, um, yeah, really, really terrible and sad things, and and mm-hmm. good and righteous responses to things. You know, there, there is. It's certainly by contempt, the, the standards of contemporary literature. It's like, wow, that is, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons why maybe some people are turned off by it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not just a, a recent criticism. I mean, that's no. one of Chesterton's biggest criticisms of Dickens, <laughs> yeah. is that he says, he says Dickens didn't have to try to make people laugh, but he tried to make people cry, and that's like his worst writing, is basically what he says. Um, and, uh, I mean, as a writer myself, I can sympathize with that. Like, it's really fun to make people cry if you can. It's really hard to make them laugh. Um, and so, yeah. And and so Chesterton actually draws a contrast between like his sentimental portraits, sentimental portraits of the poor, like the scene that I read to you about Jenny, um, and his other poor characters who are like having a great time but are poor. He he loves this character in Pickwick called Sam Weller, who's like this servant guy who kind of just does all kinds of random stuff. But um, but it would be similar with, um, oh, what's his name? The, the, the oh, in Tale of Two Cities, the guy who digs up dead bodies. Um, <laughs> I'm totally blanking. Um, he's, like, really poor. He's really terrible. He, like, beats up his wife all the time. That's not funny, but it, but it actually is, like, the way Dickens writes it in a terrible way. Um and and then he's like this resurrection man who digs up dead bodies for medical research, um, and like that character is so interesting and bizarre and funny and like important also at the same time. That's where Chesterton is like this is where Dickens is really good at getting the poor right. But in um, Bleak House, where it kind of says like the mom the mother starts weeping weeping very much, Alan Jacobs actually points out that there was this common perception in the Victorian era that actually the poor don't experience grief as much because that people die all the time, so it's not, like, not as big of a deal for them when their kids die. Uh, and Dickens is trying to be like, no. no. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. still her baby. Like, just because it's the fifth one that's died doesn't make it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was there was a reason for showing the poor as having emotions right. and, and being sympathetic with one another. Um, that was kind of a big thing he was trying to counteract like it was culturally popular to say 
So I think that's helpful for us to know as well in terms of self-serving, callous attitude. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even in that same section, he says, "What the poor are to the poor, only they and God knows." Um, no. Yeah, Marty. I'm just thinking about the, the thing of um, taking stock of our own deaths. Hmm. And I know there there was an era where people used to, and I don't remember, I remember when this was, maybe you know, but when people would would like lie in a coffin for a while. In their own coffin. In their own coffin to remind themselves of their mortality. Hmm. And you look at that today and you think that's, I'm sorry, how morbid, da, da, da. But we're so protected from death today. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, so many people have never seen a dead body, and which in the past would have been, and, and in most parts of the world, would be unthinkable. Mm-hmm. You would have seen, you know, mm-hmm. by the time you were 20, you would have seen lots of dead bodies. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't until I was older than that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, I just wonder, I mean, it is interesting, that, you know, the Roscoe's idea of going to graveyards and thinking about it. Can you think of other just ways that without without becoming morbidly self, <clears throat> you know, into my self mm-hmm. in an impressive way that that we can do that in a way that is actually helps us to take life more seriously and other people and take mm-hmm. our common humanity more seriously mm-hmm. that we are all fellow travelers to the grave. Mm-hmm. We simply are, as you. As you describe that scene in, in uh, Christmas Carol so powerfully, that you know, there's this corpse. There's just nothing. all the things that give a person a sense of meaning, a sense of importance, a sense of this is this is what I have, this is what I've done. It's just all gone. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're you know when we're in that situation, which we all are going to be in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. I'm trying to remember if this isn't something that you gave me last term, Nicola, but it was this a bunch of different kinds of exercises. But I think one of them was to write your own obituary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like kind of also to think about like what you want out of life or where you're headed or where you think you're headed. Um, like, yeah, say how old you think you'll be and what kind of family do you think you would have had? Or I think that that could be a, a good exercise to just mm-hmm. to think about like, yeah, what would I want it to be like? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think Scrooge is confronted with, like, this is literally just a name on a stone. Like, nothing I've done matters at all. Um, it's not going to be like Ebenezer Scrooge made five million pounds in his lifetime. Like, no one's going to write that on his right. tombstone because there's no one to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no one that connected to him. Mm-hmm. So... That's just a, that was just That's a thought that came into my mind. But do other people have ideas? Yeah, Nikayla. Um, I think it's interesting. I think this is much more common in New England, or maybe just because we live in a small town and there's like a funeral parlor. Mm-hmm. But the practice of a wake. Mm-hmm. There's often a wake mm-hmm. at the funeral parlor, mm-hmm. and it is set up that you walk by the body, mm-hmm. and then the family is at the end. And mm-hmm. You know, there's often a line out the door mm-hmm. of the funeral parlor, like people passing one another to walk in to see it, the body in the coffin. And 
I do think that's a quite a powerful recognition of your humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, they're often quite happy when they come out. <laughs> like, I have watched this because it's across the street from the library. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of people hugging at, on the other side of the mm-hmm. house. Like, you, you see them lining up to go and have walking past them, and there's a patio on the side. And, mm-hmm. You just think that it's quite jarring for lots of people to mm-hmm. see a dead body. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's often their neighbors that they also see that that's true in our church, but in our black church, it was never true in any white churches, obviously. But there's always um, a viewing, yeah. I mean, a memorial service or a funeral. There's always the body. You come first, and you go up, and you say goodbye mm-hmm. to the person that you knew who is now in a coffin. Mm-hmm. You know, but we never—that was never true in any white churches I was part of. But it's very much, very much part of the church services. Mm-hmm. 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 
might think. You probably all have needs like David Copperfield. We need to go to bed. <laughs> okay, so thank you all. Have a good night.